Welcome to the Man of God Network. The Man of God Network is a ministry of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary in Owensboro, Kentucky. This is the voice of the narrated Puritan, a presence now on sermon audio of Puritan and Reformed audiobooks, now in the 36th year of audiobook recordings. For more recordings, go to sermonaudio.com and do a search at The Narrated Puritan. I was looking through books.google.com, as my manner commonly is when I'm trying to come up with an idea for this podcast. I found another centennial. It is called The Story of Baptist Missions in Foreign Lands from the Time of William Carey to the Present Date by Reverend G. Winfred Hervey. The centennial edition was published in 1892, marking the 100th anniversary of the sending out of William Carey to India. Anybody more than superficially aware of the biography of Adoniram Judson will know that he headed to India originally as a Congregationalist and became a Baptist through his studies on the voyage. They may not know that a good friend of his also did by the name of Luther Rice. So let me introduce him to you. Luther Rice sustained much the same relation to Adoniram Judson as Andrew Fuller did to William Carey. The one held the ropes while the other went down into the deep gold mine. He came home from the east for the purpose of waking up the Baptist churches in America and engaging them in foreign missions. It was through him that Judson wrote letters of promise and appeal to his Baptist brethren at home while he in turn wrote letters of encouragement to Judson, keeping him informed of the progress of the missionary spirit and assuring him of Baptist cooperation and support. He was born in Northboro, Massachusetts, March 25, 1783. He was in his early years distinguished for his love of study and perseverance in scientific pursuits. He was converted while pursuing his studies at Leicester Academy, Entering Williams College in 1807 and the year following, he became one of the five famous students, formed a secret missionary society with the Constitution and signatures written in cipher. It has been asserted that Mills was the founder of that society. That would be Samuel Mills. This belief may have been created by the fact that his name appears first among the signers. They all, however, signed the Constitution at the same time, and it signifies nothing who put down his name first. Nor is the fact of the existence of this society very important so far as foreign missions are concerned, for it is well known that at that time almost all the members were deliberating as to their duty to the American Indians. And could it be proved that Samuel Mills was the foremost member and founder of this secret society, it would still remain to be shown who was first in turning their thoughts towards India. Footnote. It is usual for Pado baptists to make Samuel Mills the originator of all our foreign missions, but when called upon for facts and crowded by arguments, they became very devout in their remarks on the wisdom and goodness of God and not allowing any one man to have the glory of being foremost. Such evasions are of the nature of sophistical cant. Lutherites never took any part in the controversy, but his most intimate friends contended that he was the originator of the project of foreign missions, so far as William College was concerned. 
Soon after he entered college in 1807, he said, I have deliberately made up my mind to preach the gospel to the heathen, and added, I do not know, but it may be in Asia. Naturally of a very comprehensive mind and great ardor of temperament, it is not at all strange that he should have been the first to compassionate the miseries of those who dwell on the other side of the world. Graduating at Williams College in 1810, Luther Rice next became a student in the then newly formed Andover Theological Seminary. About the same time, he united with five of his congregational brethren in a request to the General Association of Massachusetts for their advice and assistance in respect of a mission to the heathen. But before the paper was presented, his name and that of Mr. Richards which happened to stand at the end of the list, were struck off for fear of alarming the association with too large a number. The result of this application was the formation of the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions. Luther Rice, as we have seen elsewhere, sailed for India from Philadelphia at about the same time that Mr. Judson embarked at Salem. He appears to have given some attention to the subject of baptism during the voyage, for we are told that while at sea he showed himself a more obstinate friend of paedobaptism than any of his fellow missionaries. The first sign of any change in his sentiments was while sojourning at Serampore. Quote, I had no suspicion of it, says William Carey, till one morning when he came before I was up to examine my Greek testament. He was baptized at Calcutta November 1st about four months after his arrival in Bengal. And speaking of the circumstances which led to Rice's return to America, we have elsewhere observed that the Baptists of America were further advanced than commonly supposed in their zeal for foreign missions, and that Mr. Judson and Rice must have known that they hazarded nothing in being transferred to the patronage of the Baptist denomination. The same vessel which carried rice to India carried also Dr. Johns, a British Baptist missionary, who just before his embarkation had collected $5,000 for serum pour from the Baptists of Boston and Salem. During a five months' voyage, if not before he set out, Luther Rice must have heard Dr. Johns express his opinion of the missionary spirit of the American Baptists. Mr. Rice was also befriended by Baptists before he embarked for India. At first, Mr. Rice had not expected to accompany Judson, Samuel Newell, and the rest, but to follow them the next year. Consequently, he had not made application to the board to be sent out with them, but he afterwards suddenly made up his mind to go with them and applied to the committee who, though they were not authorized to appoint a missionary, permitted him to be of the party, provided he would go out at his own expense. And within nine days of the embarkation, he begged funds enough for his outfit and passage. A handsome portion of this came from the liberality of the Baptists. This fact was stated by him after his return from India and replied to the treasurer of the Pado-Baptist Society, who had requested him to refund the money expended on his outfit. He at the same time reminded the society of the contrast between their treatment of him and their non-sectarian professions. After his return to America, 
Rice evinced great tact, activity, and executive ability in organizing missionary societies, which were afterwards auxiliaries of the Triennial Convention. Of these he set on foot five and twenty in the course of the year preceding the formation of the convention. His industry was very great. He gave himself only five or six hours of sleep. The rest of his time was given to traveling, to collecting money, to keeping accounts, to writing letters and circulars, drafting reports, and preparing sermons. Though going from place to place, he did not repeat his sermons. He made it a rule to select his texts in order of the chapters until he had preached through the entire New Testament. Consequently, as his texts and subjects were always fresh, he was constantly pondering new manner for the pulpit. He was much occupied with business, and yet he could pass from it to the social circle and to the pulpit with great ease and preach very impressive and persuasive sermons. As a speaker, he was natural, pathetic, and full of pertinent and practical thought. In person, he was tall, being about six foot in height, in later years, a little portly. His eyes were small but pleasant. His voice was calm and penetrating, reaching distinctly the utmost here. He avoided cant and never appeared a hearty, sincere, and honest man. Though fluent, he never spoke without having something to say. And if his sermons were not written, they never were. They were well studied. Aside from the special cause he pleaded, his influence as a mere preacher of the gospel was very great. It is said that many fruits of his labors are distinctly traced among the southern churches. The visit of Mrs. Ann Judson to her native land was a great event in his life. It called up the memories of days when life was young and hope was high. Her visit to Washington reminded his brethren of his relation to foreign missions and to the most distinguished of those who were personally engaged in them. For four years more, he continued to serve as agent of the convention. But in 1826, when Columbian College was separated from it, he resolved to share the fortunes of his beloved institution. As a friend of theological education, he was at that time in advance of his Baptist brethren, even of Mr. Judson himself. He was instrumental in raising the standard of ministerial training for missionary service and in educating some of our most distinguished pastors and men of letters. Among these was the celebrated Dr. Neal of Boston. When I was a boy of 16, he says, living in Connecticut and with no means of defraying the expenses of my education, a letter came to my pastor from the Reverend Luther Rice saying, tell the young man to come to Columbian College, Washington City, and I reckon we shall be able to put him through. I accordingly went to Washington and found Luther Rice, a warm friend, and ready to aid me in the severe struggle with poverty through which I then and in subsequent years passed in preparing for the Christian ministry. His old horse Columbus, named for the college rather than in honor of the great navigator, and harnessed to the old rickety sulky, was constantly on the go. Columbus was everywhere known as familiarly as his master, and whenever he appeared at the door of minister, merchant, or planter, it was understood that a donation was wanted for the college. 
How is it, said one of the brethren to him one day, that you who were made for a minister or missionary should devote your whole life to begging money for that college? Well, said Luther Rice, shrugging his shoulders and putting on a pleasant and shrewd look, I am a mystery to myself. All I can say is that it has pleased Almighty God to raise up just such a man as Luther Rice. The existence of Columbian College and the genison of the Triennial Convention are largely due to the industry, patience, self-denial, versatility, and devoted piety of Luther Rice. And if, as has been said, he had less power to steer ships than to build and launch them, it is equivalent to saying that he was not a universal genius, an admirable Crichton, or a many-eyed and many-handed Hindu god. He was, to say the least, respectable according to the British test of respectability. He was able to ride in a gig. A member of the gigocracy is, beyond all question, respectable. Yes, and Luther Rice was eminently and illustriously so, for when he died, all his property, which consisted mostly in Columbus and the Sulky, he bequeathed to Columbian College. We hope the officials of that institution, now a university, will never forget that its founder was not a judge or a senator, but a poor Baptist minister. The privations and toils of his migratory life were only approached by those of Bishop Asbury. His journeys lay through wildernesses of pine and oak, over bridgeless rivers, through the waters of numberless fords, across muddy valleys, and over steep and almost pathless mountains. These tours extended southward from Philadelphia to the Gulf of Mexico, and westward from the Atlantic to Middle Kentucky and Tennessee. Sometimes, in order to attend associations, he was compelled to travel 400 miles in six days. During the seasons of associations, he averaged about 250 miles a week. One year, he measured 6,600 miles and another 7,800. So pressed for time was he occasionally that he would be detained at a place writing letters until midnight and then without sleep set off on his journey. How often he lost himself, we know not. Once, at least, while traveling by night in Montgomery County, North Carolina, as he confesses, he got lost and had to pick his path by night along by roads, none of them fenced, but little traveled. Missing his way, he found himself alone in a dreary wilderness and unable to discover the points of the compass. The new footpath had, as backwoodsmen would say, ended in a squirrel track which ran up a tree. I stopped, says he, and besought the Lord to lead me out. In less than five minutes after rising from his knees, he fell into a road that led him to a human habitation. His was a life of rare self-denial and self-sacrifice. Few men have cheerfully endured so many hardships and shown so thorough a consecration to Christ. For more than twenty years, and until he died in the prime of life, he toiled in a region that was poisonous to his constitution. Through winter's cold and summer's heat, in sunshine and storm, by day and by night, without a home. His devotion to the cause of missions and of ministerial education was complete. When his friends presented to him money to buy new garments, he often employed it in enlarging the contributions to Columbian College. 
To meet the wants of this institution, he relinquished a patrimony of some 2,000, so that in 1826 he was without a cent in the world. From that time until his death, embraced in a period of ten years, he traveled almost constantly to preach and collect for the college, without the least salary or support from that or any other institution. He defrayed his traveling expenses partly from the sales of a few religious books and partly from the gifts of individual friends. Without a place to lay his head, the kind and soothing attentions of wife and children he never knew, he died as he had lived among comparative strangers, and no tear of kindred affection bedewed his grave. Luther Rice died at Edgefield, South Carolina, September 25th. 1836. His remains repose near the Pine Pleasant Baptist Church. The South Carolina Baptist Convention has caused a large marble slab to be placed over his grave. While traveling among the Baptists of his native land, Rice met with a considerable number of the friends of foreign missions, who had for ten years or more been learning to give aid to the Serum poor brethren. Yet the state of feeling among many good Christian people in America regarding foreign missions was one of indifference, or at best very languid interest. When young Adoniram Judson visited England with a view to enlist a London Missionary Society in behalf of himself and his fellow candidates for foreign service, he was compelled to testify before the committee that zeal for missionary effort seems to have been excited chiefly, if not entirely, among those who have only their personal services to offer. This want of enthusiasm in behalf of foreign missions was not so much the result of avarice or unconcern for the progress of the Redeemer's kingdom as of a very general conviction that American Christians were more clearly summoned to direct their missionary exertions to the conversion of the aboriginal savages that were scattered in unknown numbers over a continent, many parts of which were equally unknown, degraded and almost embruted red men idolaters of the worst description, inhabited the boundless wilderness on the borders of which they were settled. Did not their own providential situation and the maxim that charity begins at home call aloud, seek first the conversion of the Indians? The first large legacy left for foreign missions to the American Board of Commissioners, that of Mrs. Norris, was contested before the legislator of Massachusetts, and objections were emphatically urged against any and all attempts to evangelize the heathen of India until the barbarians of our own country should be converted to Christ. Happily, justice prevailed, and the $30,000 in dispute ultimately went to the cause of foreign evangelization. Then as now, given to benevolent objects beyond the bounds of one's own parish, was by some considered a short-sighted economy. How much more short-sighted to give money which was going to the other side of the world, never to return. One of the advocates of the validity of the will mentioned above gave forth this golden sentence. Religion is a singular commodity. The more we export of it, the more we have at home. The sisterhood of the churches took a lively interest in the question and discussed it in parlor and kitchen with considerable animation. These were the days of female mite societies and scent societies. 
But the titles of these little organizations give no clue to the amounts of money they forwarded to the treasuries of the national missionary societies. Sometimes almost all the earnings of an industrious and thrifty woman would be dedicated to the service. Then again, small fortunes at the death of the fair owner would, on the recommendation of some leading member of one of these little companies, be laid as an oblation on the altar of the important cause. One day as I was searching in our old family graveyard for certain dates, I passed a marble slab which had been placed at the head of my grandmother's grave. I had not visited it since. I was a wild and thoughtless boy, and remember not a word of the epitaph that had been cut into it. I saw that it so inclined to one edge that part of the inscription was buried beneath the sod. I seized a hoe that was lying near and began to hack away the turf. After a little digging, I brought to light the letter A and then the word friend, next of. Now my curiosity was fairly awakened, and I eagerly asked myself, a friend of whom, or of what? Presently I exhumed the word missions. I shall not attempt to describe my delight in making that discovery. I relate a little incident here is illustrating the earnestness of many Christian women in the beginning of the present century on the subject of foreign missions. From her known solicitude about her posterity, she composed and published an elaborate letter on the necessity of personal piety addressed to her children and grandchildren. I inferred that this inscription was chiseled in the marble in obedience to her deathbed request. I was led back to those days when Christian women were discussing the subject and taking sides for or against foreign missions how she resolved and persevered in her determination to the very brink of Jordan. Other women, perhaps as excellent, decided in favor of Indian missions, and not a few went with their husbands as missionaries to the red men of the West. They toiled and suffered, and some of them died martyrs to the cause. Many there were, and history is sorry to record the fact that were on principle opposed to all missions. They have been called by various names of reproach as hardshells, black rocks, and anti-mission Baptists. Never were they exceedingly numerous. We have heard that some of them still survive, but almost all their churches have died a natural death. Natural, did I say? Perhaps I should have said very unnatural. One pulpit orator, many years since, stigmatized them as the fossil remains of Pharaoh's kind. This, however, must be said in their favor that they had the courage of their opinions. While too many give to missions as little as they, yet in total opposition to their avowed belief, and others give much inconsiderately, and they know not why. But for the blessing of the Master on the exertions of Luther Rice, the last-mentioned classes of professors would have been very numerous today. It is right to add to this biographical sketch that it was not Luther Rice's original plan to live a single life. While a student, there was a strong attachment mutually indulged between himself and a young lady of piety and of highly respectable connections, and whose mind long oscillated respecting her duty to leave her native land. For a long time he hoped she might be willing to share with him in the perils and privileges of a foreign mission. But at length a distinct negative was given to the question, and releasing him from all engagements with her, provided he should determine to go to India. 
He was very reluctant, even with her consent, to leave her. But after many painful thoughts on the subject, he resolved to forsake all and follow Christ wherever he saw his footprints. Luther Rice sometimes complained of his lonesomeness. This reminds us of another missionary spirit who was not a stranger to it. Two years before he found a lonely grave in South Carolina, there died at Maulmain of jungle fever a maiden missionary of brief but most affecting biography, Miss Sarah Cummings. A native of Yarmouth, Maine, she had gone out in company with Mr. Simons and Hancock, who landed on January 1st, 1833. Soon after her arrival, before she had acquired the language, taken with her to the Roman teacher whom she had engaged, she went out to occupy the secluded station which had just then been planted in the wilderness at Kumara. Here she continued until June when she was taken sick and was obliged to return to Maulmain for medical treatment. She resumed her station in July, but at the close of September her Burman teacher fell sick. Her studies being thus interrupted and jungle fever beginning to prevail, she had the sick man placed in a boat, superintending the loading of it herself amidst torrents of rain and set out for Maulmain. She returned to Kumara in December and remained with the exception of a few days a year and a half until her last illness. Here in a cottage of leaves at a distance of 60 miles from the nearest habitation of civilized men, she cheerfully resided in the Karen jungle, studying the language, superintending the school, ministering to the sick, and by her presence and activity winning the confidence of the natives and imparting energy and order to all the operations of the station. A little church was organized of which native assistants took such pastoral care as they were able. But the brave leader of the little band was soon summoned to a less dangerous field of service. Seized with a jungle fever, she hastened to Maulmain for medical aid, but she was beyond human skill and departed hence on the Lord's Day in August of 1834. She was unconscious during the last hours upon earth, but left better evidence of preparation for heaven than can be furnished by a joyful death, the evidence of a holy and benevolent life. In all her loneliness and trials, amidst all her toils among the children of the wilderness, without a friend to assist her, or even a white face to look upon, she was uniformly calm, patient, self-denying, and heavenly-minded. In a letter written at the end of her first year at Kumara, she briefly and in an unpretending manner records the events and employments of the year winding up with this testimony. Crosses, self-denials, sufferings, and trials— None have I to mention worthy of the name. The evils I anticipated have not been realized in a year happier than has been the past. Have I never seen? The only scrap of writing which she left was a kind of almanac for 1834, prepared for her own use with a paragraph affixed of which the following prayer is a part. Thou hast by thy good providence led me into this wilderness, and here thou hast oftentimes spoken comfortably to me. I bless and adore thee for thy great goodness. Who of all thy daughters is more highly favored? And now, Lord, come unto me and make thine abode with me. Without thee I am lonely being indeed, but with thee no one less so. So there, there you have a very quick sketch of Luther Rice. A seminary was named after him. 
and Sarah Cummings, another missionary to the Korean people in Burma. Thank you for tuning in to the Man of God podcast.